They're invading in Ukraine, voting in Texas, and searching for secrets in Mar-a-Lago. It's a lock em up edition of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add me to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 383 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. So the incursion has begun. Putin has figured that just as the world sat back and allowed the Russian invasion of Crimea to occur with no consequences, why should it be any different with an invasion into eastern Ukraine? One thing that feels different, at least at this early stage, is that Moscow is not fooling anyone. When Putin indicated he was pulling back forces in order to let negotiations work, no one, not the least of which the President of the United States, was buying it. Joe Biden may still be smarting over the way he handled the Afghanistan pullout, but he's getting high marks from many places over how he has been calling Putin out every step of the way. He's going to have to follow up, of course, and the milquetoast sanctions response is not going to cut it. Not everyone is backing Biden and opposing Putin, to no surprise. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well. Very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us. Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. That was Trump on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show. But as I said, it's early. America's allies seem to be united in stopping Russian aggression, even though no one thinks Putin is going to stop at the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. As far as he's concerned, it's a Donetsk and don't-tell policy. Meanwhile, there'll be no time for jokes should China take advantage of this and do something nasty with Taiwan. An invasion, which they've been hinting at since 1949, is not something that's out of the realm of possibility especially in this world. One sad note to report about Congress, Jim Hagedorn, a Minnesota Republican first elected to the House in 2018, died last Thursday of cancer. He was 59 years old and had previously tested positive for COVID. He had sought the seat in 2010 when he lost the primary, and again in 2014 and 2016 when he lost to the Democratic incumbent Tim Walz. When Walls decided to run for governor in 2018, Hagedorn ran again, and this time he won. All elections, including his 2020 re-election, were close. Hagedorn was a strong ally of Donald Trump and was among those who voted against certifying Joe Biden as the presidential winner. Trump offered an audio endorsement of Hagedorn during the election. Hello, Minnesota. This is Donald J. Trump, your president, hopefully your all-time favorite president. I need you to get out and vote for a really spectacular guy, re-elect Jim Hagedorn to Congress. Hagedorn's father, Tom Hagedorn, represented much of the district in Congress from 1975 until 1982. Governor Walz has announced that a special primary to succeed Hagedorn will be held on May 24th, with a special election on August 9th, the same day as Minnesota's regular primary. We skip the line.
Texas kicks off this year's primary season on Tuesday, but with Republicans holding all the statewide offices and controlling the redistricting process and Democrats barely showing signs of life in many races, the Lone Star State has become a one-party state. Still, there are some interesting questions that will be answered on March 1st. Is Governor Greg Abbott sufficiently conservative for the Texas GOP? And whither the last member of the Bush family dynasty? Ross Ramsey is the executive editor of the Texas Tribune and joins us now. Ross, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm old enough to remember when the name of the game in Texas was the Democratic primary, that, that the Republican candidates were often sacrificial lambs. That's hardly the case anymore. No, I remember the same thing. And, you know, in some ways, I feel like we're watching the Democrats try to do what the Republicans were doing in the 80s, where, you know, try to break through in some of these races. As we stand in Texas now, Democrats have not won a statewide race since 1996. So we're well embedded in a Republican majority state. And what gives the Democrats a little bit of hope, what Democrats have hope, is that the margins by which Republicans win statewide elections has been declining a little bit. They're still winning. They're just not winning as, as big as they used to win. Uh, right. Demographics are changing, right? It's partly demographics. It's partly just the, you know, I think, you know, the, the state swings. You know, after a while, if you are uh, not happy with your government and if the same group has had it for a while, that's when you, you know, it's like changing your underwear from time to time. They've had these under, this underwear on for a long time, and we'll see if they're ready to make a change. You have both Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton. They're being challenged for renomination, and I want to start with them, okay? So if you're the governor of Texas, you start thinking about 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We saw that with George W. Bush. We saw that with uh, Rick Perry. And the word is that Abbott has those ambitions as well. But, of course, first he has to win Tuesday's primary. What's his argument? What's the argument he's making for another term? You know, it's pretty simple. It's Texas is prosperous. I've been in charge for a long time. He's the longest serving. He was the longest serving attorney general before he became governor. And he's uh, running for a third term. Texas, he argues, has been doing well and is thriving sometimes because of Washington, sometimes in spite of Washington. And, you know, people should stick with a good thing. Uh, that's, That's basically the argument. And in his own primary, you know, as you point out, you know, the Republicans relatively unchallenged by Democrats, have started challenging other Republicans. And and what's going on in the Republican Party and in Abbott's primary in particular is that you've got different shades of red inside the Republican Party. And and there is actually a group inside the Republican Party who believes that uh, Greg Abbott, who's very conservative, is not conservative enough. Now, there's part of that. Is, is, yeah, I mean, that, that, that baffles me, too. I, I'm thinking of Alan West, the former Florida congressman and Texas Republican Party chair, who's, who's one of uh, Abbott's challenges, saying that he's not sufficiently conservative. How much of that is about COVID? I think a lot of it's about COVID. You know, a lot of people who want to run for office, you know, you're going to find anything you think might give you some traction. And the loudest detractors to the governor are the people who were up in arms about his initial responses to COVID. And like a bunch of other governors, you know, whether you support this one or not, you know, the, the reaction to the pandemic has varied over time. The initial, you know, idea was, well, let's shut everything down and see what's going on. Back in the days when we were worried more about, you know, whether this was on surfaces and on our hands than in the air. And then we switched to masks, and for a while we were pro-mask, and then masks have become a signifier, of, you know, almost a signifier of which party you're in. And, you know, over time, as those things have changed, and as the risk levels of the disease have risen and fallen, the governor has been alternately unpopular with different groups of people uh, who either thought he was taking too much care and support sacrificing too many liberties, or and people on the other side who thought that he was not taking enough care. Um, you know, it's kind of a no-win situation. He's come through, we're two years in, and he remains popular with Republican voters, and I haven't seen any polls that would indicate that he's in any kind of serious trouble in the March 1st primary. I've heard that Donald Trump is not a fan. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I think Donald Trump's favorite here is uh, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, who is a culture warrior, much more conservative on a um, social sense and, and more vocally probably than Abbott. And also, you know, Dan Patrick has been a very vocal and ardent supporter of Donald Trump. Trump's really interesting in Texas, and I, I suspect this is probably true in other states, but, you know, in Texas, Trump is still remarkably conservative with Republican voters. So the last poll I saw out of the University of Texas was that 81% of Republican voters still have a favorable impression of Donald Trump, which is really strong and also means that any Republican, you know, one way to tell the difference between Republican A and Republican B is their allegiance or lack of it to Donald Trump. Um, one of the things going on here is that, you know, Trump has been, he's endorsed Greg Abbott, but he's not as full-throated about it as he is about Dan Patrick and some others. Well, you know, I think that's mostly interesting in the in the race for attorney general. This is a this is um, Ken Paxton is the incumbent. He's been under indictment, I think, since 2015, right? And and on paper mm-hmm. he's damaged goods, but not only has Trump endorsed him, but but uh, well, first of all, Trump has endorsed him, and even under indictment, he was reelected four years ago. So how does Ken Paxton manage to survive? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think if that, you know, if that indictment was a child, it would be in second grade now. It's been a long, long time, and, and we're waiting to go to court on it. It's an indictment that does not involve official office. He's an attorney, and it's a securities fraud charge that basically comes from a group of investors who said that he did not disclose that he was being compensated for touting a stock that they or, or a company interest that they bought into. You know, I don't know who's who's guilty and who's not in that, but it's a felony indictment. And as you say, the voters have already looked at it once and said, you know, we don't care about that. Um, the more recent thing is, you know, probably 14 or 15 months ago, a number of high-level lawyers in the attorney general's office, these are stout lawyers, uh, all very Republican Republicans. You know, there's not a there's not a partisan thing here, but they were all working for Ken Paxton. And as a group, they stood up and said, we believe Ken Paxton is using his public office for the benefit of a private political donor. And that's under investigation, you know, at one point by the FBI, it's in court, there's some civil actions around it. And that's an official act. And, you know, the voters haven't passed judgment on that. I think the indication of how serious that is, though, to kind of loop back to your question, is the quality of the opponents in Paxton's primary. This is a sitting attorney general who's attracted opposition in his own primary from a Texas Supreme Court justice, from a land commissioner who's from the most famous family in Texas politics, George P. Bush, and from a congressman who's really well-known. He's never run statewide, but Louis Gohmert is a noisy and loud Republican. And importantly, I think he's from the same wing of the Republican Party that Paxton is. So if Paxton's trying to stay out of a runoff, his biggest concern is that Louis Gohmert doesn't steal votes from his pile to the benefit of George P. Bush or Eva Guzman. It's interesting about Bush because, uh, first of all, you know, we, we know about the history of how Donald Trump feels about the Bush family, certainly George W. Bush and Jeb Bush, George P.'s father. But right. given, given Trump's antagonism towards the Bush family and to see Bush just, you know, suck up to him as much as he can. That must have been very painful for him when the the former president ultimately endorsed Paxton. Well, the president's been close to Paxton. You know, Paxton was one of the speakers at the event that preceded the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. So he and the president are close. There was an extraordinary moment back when Bush was running the first time. We had him on stage, and he was being interviewed by our CEO, um, Evan Smith, and wouldn't endorse his father in the presidential primary against Donald Trump. It was a really awkward, very sort of telling moment. And, you know, Trump has talked about George P. Bush as, quote, the Bush who likes me, unquote. And and it's just sort of played him alone. I don't know that anybody could have gotten Trump's endorsement over Ken Paxton in a race like this. It's just, you know, this is one of the things that I think, you know, I think Trump has been you know, a, a really great firewall for Ken Paxton in the face of all of these legal troubles, and maybe the only one, if 
you had a race without Trump's influence in it or with Trump in favor of another candidate, we'd have a different attorney general's race. Even with Trump, I think we might have a runoff here. First of all, let me just play a little snippet of a Bush commercial. The liberal mob in Washington, D.C. has made it clear. Once again, Texas is in her crosshairs. I'm George P. Bush, and I'm running for attorney general because I will not sit idly by while the liberal elite and the media undermine our values here in the state of Texas. Under the leadership of President Trump, our country was strong and vibrant again. But because of the failed leadership of liberal ideas, our country is suffering. Uh, Ross, do you think, uh, I mean, does he smell a wounded incumbent or is this about ambition like Bush needed to continue to move up? What, explain to me George P. Bush. I, you know, I think it's all of those things. I think the first thing here is opportunity. You know, I think these other candidates looked at this and the donors behind those candidates who are, you know, some Republican stalwart uh, people who've been with Paxton in the past and are with Abbott and are with Patrick and with the, with the gang that's in, in control in government right now, are looking at Paxton and thinking, you know, if he's the nominee, we might be in danger of losing this office to Democrats in November. So maybe we need somebody with, you know, essentially the same politics who doesn't have the, the legal bruises and stains on them. So, you know, I think you start there with opportunity. And then, of course, you've got to get people who are ambitious George P. Bush wants to move up or out, and he's in a race where he is on March 2nd either going to be, you know, uh, if something extraordinary happens, the nominee, if something, you know, a little more um, normal happens in a runoff to be the nominee or out of public office, um, you know, or, you know, in in the last year of his term as land commissioner. So I think there's some ambition there and some, you know, let me move up or move out. And the question on the ground here, you know, if you're a political um, junkie like I am, like you are, is, is this the end of the Bush dynasty? Or is this, you know, just another episode? You know, there was a moment at the very beginning of George W. Bush's first campaign for governor, where if you went out and saw him talking to a Rotary Club in this town or, you know, a Chamber of Commerce in that town or something, the first thought you walked out with was, this guy cannot do a public speech. It's just terrible. It was just an awful performance. But, you know, uh, he trains well and moved right up, and he's a two-term president. So, you know, they come around. We're about to find out if George P. Bush is cut from that cloth or if the Bush influence in Texas politics is petering out. Tell me the dynamics of what happens if it were a Paxton versus Bush runoff. Well, I'm going to throw Trump out of this on the on, on the first take at this. The you know in a normal situation, any incumbent who is forced into a runoff for the nomination of his own party or her own party is a is an incumbent that's in deep deep trouble. If you can't get 50 percent of your own people in the first round, your chances you know you're you're attracting enemies to the general election. So. You know, a Paxton in a runoff is a Paxton in deep trouble. Um, and then you look at the opponent. If it's, you know, if it's George P. Bush, you're going to get one kind of opponent and one kind of donors against him, one kind of effort. If it's Eva Guzman, who is a respected Texas Supreme Court justice and doesn't have, you know, there's a part of the Republican Party that's tired of Bushes. And, you know, she doesn't she doesn't excite that wing. Um and then, you know, you know, it's it's possible, although he's running fourth in the polls, it's possible that Louis Gohmert, the U.S. congressman from up in northeast Texas, um, would be in that runoff. Uh, you know, so the first take on this is that Paxton would be in trouble in a runoff. The second one would be if Trump were to lean in, you know, really hard for Paxton in a runoff situation, that might be enough. You know, a, a runoff is going to be a low turnout affair. It looks like our primary is going to be a low turnout election. But the runoff would be an even lower turnout. And in low turnouts, you get the most fervent voters. You get the, the true believers, the real you know, Republican Republicans, the real Democratic Democrats. And Paxton sits pretty well with that crowd. And if Trump were to weigh in, he might get him through. If I'm a Democrat, if, you know, it's, it's completely unclear what Democrat is going to get out of their primary. But, you know, if I were a Democrat running for attorney general, I would rather run against Ken Paxton than any other Republican. I can't even tell you who the Democrat running for attorney general is, but I can tell you the Democrat running for governor, Beto O'Rourke. Now he's back. 
He'll apparently be his party's nominee for governor. And we all remember his whole story. He gave up his House seat to run for the Senate against Ted Cruz, and he lost. Then he ran for president, then he lost. No Democrat has won the governorship since Ann Richards, and that was 32 years ago. Tell me what's going on with Beto O'Rourke. You know, the first race against Cruz was really interesting. And, you know, there are a fair number of political analysts and, you know, whiskey drinkers who, who think that, you know, a couple of different bounces in that race could have gone the other way. It was a three-point race in a state where the governor was winning re-election, um, you know, pretty handily. Um, and it, it was one of those things where you look at it and you say, well, part of this is because people who don't like Ted Cruz really, really don't like Ted Cruz. So there's a built-in audience for Abeto O'Rourke. He ran a really good sort of up-from-the-bottom campaign Small donations make a lot of make a big pile of money. It was a seventy or eighty million dollar kitty on his side in a race with campaign finance limits. And you look at this and you say, you know, for a for a race that you lost, that was a pretty good loss. You know, you lost to Ted Cruz, who's a national figure, and you know this Beto O'Rourke guy is really going to be interesting in the next race that he chooses in the te- in the state of Texas. But he didn't choose a race in the state of Texas. He chose to run for president. And as everybody knows now, in the presidential race, he not only lost the nomination, but he forfeited some of the goodwill that he had built up and some of the, you know, star power that he had built in that cruise race. You know, we would be having a very different conversation if the only Beto O'Rourke run before this governor's race was the one with Ted Cruz. I think Greg Abbott would be in a much different position and Beto O'Rourke would be in a much better position. Um, as it stands, we have the best fundraiser in Republican Party history in Texas, in Greg Abbott. He got to the end of the fiscal year, with, of, of the calendar year, rather, with $65 million in his political account, which is a ton of money, even by Texas standards, against Beto O'Rourke, who raised 70 or $80 million against Ted Cruz. So the prospect is that you're going to have a Governor's race that's going to run in the you know 110 to 130 million dollar range, which is uh, quite an affair. It's at the top of the ballot, but Beto O'Rourke has some bruises that he got in that presidential race, and Greg Abbott is really good at exploiting those kinds of weaknesses. Well, speaking of weaknesses, I assume we'll be hearing more of this from the Abbott camp this fall. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to. You know, guns are a dear thing in Texas. The Texas legislature uh, in spring of 2021 passed what they call constitutional carry, which basically says you can carry a handgun in Texas if you're not if you're an adult and you're not a felon and you don't need a license and you don't need training. This is a pro-gun state. Voters are pro-gun. And there is a significant number of Democrats as well as Republicans who you know, take umbrage at, you know, saying you're going to come take a gun away from them. They're Second Amendment extremists in some way, and they're true believers. And it's a a statement that might have made sense, you know, you can argue, might have made sense in a presidential race. It certainly doesn't make make much sense in a Texas race. I think the other issue that these two are going to be talking about a lot are uh, the border, uh, border security and immigration it's a huge issue with Republican voters in Texas. It's been a mainstay of Greg Abbott's uh, time in office. And Beto O'Rourke is from a border city, El Paso, that, you know, and has strong opinions on this. I think in some ways you're going to see the Abbott campaign trying to litigate on the basis of this gun statement, Beto O'Rourke trying to litigate on the basis of Abbott and the polar vortex that froze Texas and caused a big blackout a year ago. But I think the real battleground between these two is going to be about border security and immigration and how Texas ought to handle that. And, it, you know, it potentially, you know, it's a it's a very popular thing with um, Republican voters. Greg Abbott has got the state spending three billion dollars in, you know, on fencing and troops and state police down there. Beto O'Rourke, on the other hand, has you know the advantage of being from the border and. Also, if he takes on border security and and slaps the Biden administration a little bit, that might be to his benefit in a state where Biden is unpopular and where, you know, could be a a millstone around the neck of Democrats like Dr. O'Rourke. Let me um, let me ask you one one final question about the House races. The Republicans seem to have done a masterful job of redrawing the lines, the congressional lines that 
demolished the few chances the Democrats have have had of holding, holding their own. But but there's one particular race worth talking about, I think. This is in the 28th district, the 28th district in South Texas. Henry Cuellar, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House, faces the primary with Jessica Cisneros. Uh, she's a liberal backed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a, an assortment of left-wingers. Uh, what's the issue there? Well, I think a lot of it is just, you know, what you started with. Henry Cuellar is a conservative Democrat, and the progressive Democrats don't like him at all. Uh, Cisneros came close to beating him last time. He prevailed in that race. Cuellar has been very good for a long time, from his days in the Texas House of Representatives all the way into Congress, at being a conservative Democrat and sort of maintaining that, you know, that swing position, like a Joe Manchin position, for lack of a better term, in both the Texas House and then in the United States Congress. And, you know, it's, it grates with the more liberal members of his party. Republicans have tried to get him to switch parties several times. And, you know, the regular, you know, private line on this has been, you know, if you switch parties and you're from Laredo, Texas, as he is, you're going to lose your race just because of the R after your name. You can make an argument about, you know, that may be changing, that may not be changing, you know, the proof's in the pudding. The people like Henry Cuellar who aren't switching parties are kind of the proof that the people who really know that area don't think you could win down there as a Republican. So he draws an opponent here, and his compound problem is that the FBI raided his office and his home for records. We don't know what they were looking for. We just know that a bunch of people were in his yard and around his parking lot in those dark blue FBI T-shirts that they used to seize files and things. And they did it right before the primary. So that's really all he's talking about. And, you know, that, that, that's not a great thing to be talking about when you're trying to get the voters to give you more time. I mentioned this earlier, but Democrats continue to, stay, to say that uh, the demographics in Texas are changing, that they're going to start winning elections. Does that start this year or not yet? You know, as I said, you know, at the top, the margins for Republicans have been declining, but they're still there. It's still a Republican state. And, you know, the Democrats have been saying for a long time, this is not a Republican state. It's a low turnout state. 2020 was our biggest turnout election in a long time, and the Republicans won handily. So the question is whether the people who don't vote vote like the people who do vote, whether, you know, the people who stay at home most of the time are Democrats or Republicans or maybe about the same mix as the people who do vote. And the evidence, you know, in that one case in 2020 was that they're just as Republican as the normal part of the electorate. We're going into a relatively low turnout election year compared to the presidential year. It's always the case in Texas that gubernatorial election years have less turnout than presidential election years. And we'll see. But I haven't seen any really convincing evidence that the pattern of the electorate has changed even as the demographics of the state have changed. It's not uh, safe, I don't think, to say that as the state becomes, you know, more uh, Hispanic um, and less Anglo, that the voting patterns of the people who are here are going to change much. Um, The proof is in the pudding. And like I said, the Republicans have won every statewide election since 1996, and the polls look like they're in a favorable position going Uh, through the election year of 2022. Ross Ramsey is the executive editor and co-founder of the Texas Tribune. Ross, thanks a lot for being on the program. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Let's talk about you and your problems. All that I seem to do is spend the night just talking about you and your problems. No matter what I say, I can't get it right. Don't think about me. It's President's Week, so I thought this would be a perfect time to bring back one of my favorite political junkie segments. It's a conversation with Murray Horowitz, the noted film critic and playwright and former NPR colleague, about presidents and movies. Everything from the tense standoff in Seven Days in May to the lunacy of Duck Soup. Here it is. 
Sending men and women into combat is one of the most solemn and serious decisions a president will ever have to make. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Sometimes, however, it's not so serious, especially when it's President Rufus T. Firefly contemplating bringing his country of Fredonia into war with Sylvania. I'd be only too happy to meet Ambassador Trentino and offer him on behalf of my country the right hand of good fellowship. And I feel sure that he will accept this gesture in the spirit in which it is offered. But suppose he doesn't. A fine thing that'll be. I hold out my hand and he refuses to accept it. That'll add a lot to my prestige, won't it? Me, the head of a country snubbed by a foreign ambassador. Who does he think he is that he can come here and make a sap out of me in front of all my people? Think of it. I hold out my hand and that hyena refuses to accept it. Why, the cheap ball-flushing swine, he'll never get away with it, I tell you. He'll never get away with it. So, you refuse to shake hands with me, eh? Mrs. Caesar, this is the last straw. There's no turning back now. This means war. And that's Groucho Marx isn't the first actor to play a president in a movie, nor the last. He's not the last to spoof the presidency, either. We thought it would be the perfect time to talk about our favorite presidential movies. And for that, we bring our favorite playwright, actor, and lyricist, Murray Hurwitz. Murray, you've had a very established career, but this is the first time you've been on The Political Junkie. It does not get better. <laughs> Than this. This is this is truly the nate. I'm sorry, the apex of of my. You mentioned lyrics, so I had to, you know. But you are a lyricist. You, I, you are, I, am, I am. Now, did I read somewhere that you are responsible for uh, Ain't Misbehaving? I am. I'm a co-author of Ain't Misbehaving, and during the time that we were colleagues at uh, another place, uh, I'm responsible for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a show that I started. That was the, the TV. That was the show about uh, Chris Christie, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm spelling. I'm spelling. Wait it's differently. Good, I'm spelling. Wait the wrong way. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, okay, I got a thing. Yes, I'm. I I was lucky enough to have a passion for Fats Waller that I was able, with great collaborators, to turn into a Broadway musical, a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical. Might you add? <laughs> so we have the Oscars coming up, uh, yep. and and uh, and I figured in a in a political junkie show, how can we not talk about political movies? And with President's Day just a few days ago, we should talk about some of our favorite movies with uh, that involve presidents. I, you know, the, the presidency has. I mean, we could do political movies, and perhaps we will of all kinds of. There are all sorts of subgenres of political right. movies. Um, and and there's a reason for that. Uh, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, politics and government have always figured in a bunch of movies. I mean, you could you you could really could say that they're in everything from James Bond movies to Buster Keaton shorts to The Wizard of Oz. Um, and and there was a, a fashion in the 70s and and even beyond post Watergate of using politics and government as a plot device. If you weren't sure why somebody was doing something, you could rest assured there was a conspiracy theory <laughs> be, behind it. And and um, there's almost a built-in plot, um, in, 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 which is something increasingly hard to find in movies nowadays. But an election <laughs> is like, you know, it's like a gambling movie or a courtroom drama because somebody wins or loses in, in, in uh Except in swing vote, where you know they leave it unresolved. But there, so presidential elections and presidents have always been a part of the movies. I hate to say it, but it's important that one of the most important motion pictures of all time. Many people think the first great motion picture was *Birth of a Nation*, which featured Abraham Lincoln. Right, and of course that's what considered like an unbelievably racist yes. film at the same time. Yes, yes, and also by the way, to continue the presidential vibe, it was. Woodrow Wilson thought so highly of this movie, he showed it in the White House and said that it was a great... Birth of, a, birth great, of a Nation. Yes, Birth wow. of a Nation. So. Do you, I was thinking that, that, that until Watergate, things were not as cynical as they are now. I mean, everything is everything cynical. If you watch uh, The People in Power in House of Cards, I mean, you oh, yeah, yeah, can't yeah. believe it. And then you go... But then it, but also, if you go back to, like, for example, The Best Man in 1964 right. with Henry Fonda and... Uh, and um, well, Cliff Robertson. Cliff, thank you. Oh, <laughs> um, you got there before I yeah. did. It's a PT that I couldn't think of Cliff Robertson earlier. Get that one? Well, the PT one on Thank you very much. But it's it, where he plays a, a soon-to-be president, right. John F. Kennedy. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, it's. I guess so, although there was Rufus T. Firefly, you know. I mean, there, the, the, the leaders have always been satirized in comedies of all sorts. But but you're right. There's there's not the same. There wasn't the same kind of cynicism. And even to this day, Ken, I'd have to say that the presidents in the movies have qualities. Often have qualities that we want our presidents to have. I mean, you know, Bill Pullman in Independence Day is very courageous. You know, Kevin Klein has this simple virtue in Dave. And so to a certain extent, the presidents in the movies, as so many other things in the movies, represent wish fulfillment on, on the part of Americans. Well, you know, something when I watch Dave and it's just, I mean, it's so beautifully underplayed yeah. uh, by Kevin Klein. And uh, um, uh, it's, it's a combination almost of Chevy Chase doing uh, uh, the president on Saturday Night Live, and right. maybe Mr. Smith goes to Washington right. in the sense that there's a naivete, but but he grows in it. Let's hear a little bit uh, from the movie Dave. So we're spending $47 million so that somebody can feel better about a car that they've already bought? Yes, sir, but I wouldn't characterize that way. No, no, I'm sure that's important, but I don't want to tell some eight-year-old kid that he's got to sleep in the street because we want people to feel better about their car. Do you want to tell him that? No, sir. No, I sure don't. There's something about President Kevin Klein in that movie that he's every man. He's a man with common sense, and suddenly his cabinet, everybody around him, suddenly realizes that, wow, this is the way things should be work, uh, operated. Yeah, that's what tests one's credibility, I think, <laughs> yeah. is how easily everybody falls into line for him. But but again, it's wishful for me. We want to believe that common sense works. Um, it's, it's Merle Miller's oral biography of Harry Truman is called Plain Speaking. And uh, I don't want to say we've never had plain spoken presidents since then, but it's, it's, not, it's not a quality we associate with the presidency. Now, okay, so Dave is Mr. Innocent. Who's more of a cynical? I think of, again, we talked a little bit about uh, the best man. We had people calling in uh, to the show suggesting their favorite movies. And uh, uh, we got this phone call uh, not too long ago. This is Ray Graves in Detroit, Michigan, thinking about movies. Well, the one that comes to mind is The Best Man, starring Henry Fonda and Cliff Robertson, about a battle in a convention for the presidential nomination. More obscure movies would be The Man, which was made for a theatrical release but ran on television, uh, starring James Earl Jones as the first black president of the United States because of a multiple vacancy. And then there's the classic that we all love, the documentary, The Making of the President 1960 by David L. Walter. Now, it's interesting that when, when we talk about those three movies, uh, uh, thank Ray, Ray, thanks for that call. But when we talk about those three movies, Ray, thanks for that phone call. But what's interesting is that when you talk about the best man, the, the battle for the nomination between Henry Fonda and Cliff Robertson uh, and The Making of the President – both of those movies, there is no president really yet. Right. I right, mean, right, right, John right. F. Kennedy is on the road to the presidency in the Teddy White novel, uh, the, the Teddy White book that yeah. went into the documentary. And, of course, the, the best man fighting for the nomination. I didn't see the man with James Earl Jones. What's that about? It's also – it's it, it, you know, it's interesting. And this is why I say the question is, is he going to win? Um, the man with James Earl Jones, some, some listeners may remember a more recent movie, not so good as the man, I would argue, uh, which was – a theatrical release because I remember vividly seeing it at a at the Salem Drive-In in Dayton, Ohio, where I was in when I was in high school. I, I think if anybody's going to see that movie, that's the place to see it. <laughs> well, it was a it was I think it came out after Rod Serling died, but Rod Serling, the creator uh, of the Twilight Zone, uh, wrote that screenplay, huh. and um, w- the contender with Joan Allen as the first woman to be nominated for president follows the same plot. I mean, I don't say it was lifted, but it's very, very similar in a lot of ways. And there's this preposterous thing that opens um, the the man, which is that um, I guess James Earl Jones is the president pro tem of the Senate. And um, there's an explosion in some uh, palace in Berlin where the president, the vice president, the secretary, everybody in the line of presidential succession is killed, right? So suddenly he becomes the president and he has a problem because he's got a daughter who's a militant at Oberlin College and uh, wearing a big afro and um, he's got to deal with all kinds of family issues, which is also another big part of presidential 
movies, you know, is how do you deal with your family? It's a great one with Bob Newhart called The First Family. But uh, there it's the question is, is he going to get the nomination or is he just going to fill out the rest of the term? And uh, I leave it to – I won't make a spoiler. Well, first of all, uh, speak, speaking about preposterous, the thought of a black president or a female <laughs> president, I mean, that's ridiculous. Come on. You, you know, I mean, come we're on. clearly in the world of fiction. But, but seriously, <laughs> but, but actually the president pro tem of the Senate is right under the, sec- the vice president and the speaker of the House. Okay. So you don't have to have the secretary of the state defense no, no, no. and all those who All died. right. So I so got it wrong. The, so all those people died for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. But – but what? But can you imagine an international meeting which would have been attended by the president, the vice president, and the speaker of the House of Representatives in Berlin? Come on, man! You know. But it's a great. I tell you what, it's it's one of the first roles, as I recall, that James Earl Jones had. Might have been his first leading role, uh, and for an African American actor to carry a film in in that day. Um, I don't know what year it was. I my recollection. Well, I could probably look it up. But in any case, it's it's. Um, it's a really good portrayal by by the younger James Earl Jones. You want to look it it's, up? Or, yes, okay. it's right here. 1972. I was wrong. I was thinking the late 60s. But still, 72 is uh, it's pretty soon after his Broadway triumph in uh, Great White Hope. One, one movie that definitely has the president on the ropes, shall we say, is Seven Days in May when there's a, an attempted uh, or a, the, the rumblings of an attempted military coup against the president. Uh, we got this phone call not too long ago. Ken Rudin, love the show. This is Bob Hawks. I'm in Chicago. Calling about my favorite political movie, which is Seven Days in May. Um, directed by John Frankenheim and starring Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. This goes back a few years about an attempted military coup uh, against a, an unpopular president. And I think it's just even more prescient now than it was then. It shows how the system itself can be undermined. I think they later remade it on HBO in a ambitious not great version but uh, seven days in may will have you on the edge of the seat knowing that they could overthrow our government and most people would go along with it love the show keep it up bye uh thanks for the call i, I first of all i think that's a great movie it's one of my favorite it's, it's a great movie it's uh fletcher nebel and charles w bailey the mm-hmm. second right they they had uh, uh they fletcher nebel anyway wrote a bunch of sort of political thrillers and foreign intrigue thrillers that were very successful and made into movies um the caller unhappily undermines his credibility by telling you how much he loves your show yeah, but well, yeah. other than that <laughs> no, no it's true and also i'll tell you what the thing i remember most vividly about seven days in may is are the opening credits. They're these kind of animated um, shots of the Great Seal of the, or the Presidential right. Seal. And it turned out, I found out later when I worked at the American Film Institute running a theater for them here in Washington, in Silver Spring, Maryland, that um, these were famous titles that they, they, they actually sort of revolutionized opening titles for, for movies. Um, but the movie's better than the titles. And <laughs> well, right, the president, I love the president's name. The pre- character of the president, played by, Jor- by Frederick March, the right. great Frederick March, is Jordan Lyman. But you know something? I remember buying the paperback of that book. Yep. And the, and the first edition of it, it said Lyman Johnson. It oh, did. really? It really oh. did. It was a, a mistake. But anyway, we have a little clip of that movie. There's a great scene where Burt Lancaster, who's the, is the chairman the of the plotting Joint general, staff, right. plotting against the president. And uh, here's the president of the United States arguing for the constitutional way of life. You want to defend the United States of America, then defend it with the tools it supplies you with, its constitution. You ask for a mandate, general, from a ballot box. You don't steal it after midnight when the country has its back turned. That's just a, just an amazing movie. I, I mean, I guess it was not a coincidence that it came out in 1964 around the time when Barry Goldwater was running for president. It seemed to remind people that the risks of a Goldwater kind of candidacy. Which, That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Which Finish your sentence. Which Well, I'm just going to say which, you know, I mean, there was a feeling with Goldwater, with the bomb, with the military, with the, the right wing, the John Burt Society and all that. And, you know, that was part of the, the tarring of Goldwater or – for right. rightly or, or for right or wrong, he was perceived as a militarist, and yeah. you'll remember one of the great moments in satire of the '60s was when the columnist Art Buchwald 
um, after President Johnson in 1965 ordered the bombing of Hanoi in North Vietnam, he said, gee, it's a good thing we didn't let Goldwater. We might be bombing Hanoi right now. And yeah, you're right. Goldwater is very, very outspoken about, you know, we should just go out there and bomb them, you know, as some of his supporters said at the time, bomb them back to the Stone Age. So yeah, I, I didn't realize it, but you're right. It has that resonance. You know, you asked earlier about, is there a president who's kind of cynical or kind of, and one of my favorite movie presidents is Jack Nicholson in Mars attacks. Um, I can't. <laughs> I, I never would have thought of that. I can't claim. Well, that's why I'm here and you're there. So, but I can't claim that, you know, he was exactly, he's kind of good nature. We kind of like him, but, but he, there, there's an edge to him. Uh, it's really a great satirical portrayal, I think, of what an American president is. And there's a little a less than wholesome thing. Well, you can't imagine Jack Nicholson being wholesome in any role. <laughs> right. right. Um, when I think of, uh, of the American, uh, Small a, small p. When I think of the American president, I think of the movie The American President, yeah. which is such a great movie. I mean, uh, Michael Douglas playing the president and Annette Benning playing the soon-to-be or a presumptive first, first lady. lady right. But there's a little scene from that movie <laughs> that I want to play. We've got serious problems, and we need serious people. And if you want to talk about character, Bob, you better come at me with more than a burning flag and a membership card. If you want to talk about character and American values, fine. Just tell me where and when and I'll show up. This is a time for serious people, Bob, and your 15 minutes are up. My name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. I mean, Andrew Shepard was Bill Clinton and... uh Bob was Bob Dole, and I mean, there was no, it was an Aaron Sorkin. Right, uh, I was just going to say it's Aaron, so, so Aaron you knew Sorkin. what it right. was, but it was still a very good movie about dealing with the cabinet, dealing with your private right. life, which ultimately when you're president, there is no private life. And that's one of the things, and one of the really, one of the dynamics about, I guess, any president and any first lady, any first family, that really intrigues filmmakers. Um, I may have mentioned this before, but, you know, you, you, the, the, the plot of who's going to win the election or is he or she going to get the nomination allows you then to do things, you know, with the problem child or with, in the case of uh, the American president who is single, I think he's a widower. He's when a widower, yes. You know, oh, gee, is he going to, is he going to hook up with this, this, with Annette Benning? And so um, he's got a love life that, that appertains to it. So it, it's really a very, very useful plot device. Uh, one of the uh, other genres of a, uh presidents in movies is the documentary. Here's one of the phone calls we received. Hi, this is Philip Gilpis from Greensboro, North Carolina. My two favorite political movies are both documentaries, um, The War Room and The Perfect Candidate. Uh, the War Room, of course, is a very uh, famous uh, view of the 1992 Clinton for President campaign and certainly made stars out of George Stephanopoulos and James Carville for uh, people who may not have known the sort of uh, role of campaign workers. And then, of course, my other favorite one uh, campaign movie, and I saw this when I was in uh, college, was uh, The Perfect Candidate, a documentary about the failed campaign of Oliver North running for Senate. Well, we'll hold off on Perfect Candidate for now because it's not about a president. That was the Virginia 1994 right. Senate race, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck uh, Robb and uh, Oliver North. But tell me about The War Room, the, uh, the Clinton documentary. Well, The War Room, um, as our caller, who was it, Dave? Uh, that was Philip. Philip. Well, the the War Room, as as Philip mentioned, is a classic documentary because it's made by one of the greatest documentarians of all time, if not the greatest, D. A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make a really, you'll forgive me, but in my mind, very important point about Pennebaker because he did the first truly modern documentary. Um, for, oh golly, what was the producer's name? Robert Townsend, I think. But uh, Pennebaker, who did the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back, who did Monterey Pop, who did Startup.com, had a big hit with The War Room. But his one of his very first films was a short about the 1960 Democratic presidential primary in West Virginia called Primary. And it was a very impressive achievement. So impressive Kennedy that- Kennedy versus Hubert Humphrey. Kennedy versus Humphrey were exactly right. And and uh, it's it's a wonderful movie. It's not that long. I encourage everybody to get it. And it was so impressive that Kennedy asked Pennebaker back to film a crisis in the White House. And they decided quickly that it couldn't be a foreign crisis. It had to be a domestic one. So it was about the integration of the University of Alabama in 1963. And that became another short 
film called Crisis, which is also remarkable. But The War Room is really made a star out of James Carville. Um, this was about the Clinton campaign. And um, they followed uh, Clinton all around New Hampshire and then on through the primaries. And it's, it's just – it's a wonderful uh, look at a, a, a campaign from the inside. When you, you just mentioned crises, and when I think of presidential crises, I think there's no greater movie, uh, political movie, than, than All the President's Men. Uh, in, the, in this scene, we have uh, the Washington Post editor Ben Bradley uh, talking to his reporters. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. You know what's amazing about that movie is that the whole movie is about Richard Nixon. You hear his name mentioned. He never appears. No, you never see the president in that movie. (laughs) It's all about journalism. And you think about how much journalists work to get the truth out, probably no better movie uh, than All the President's Men. That's right. And I remember uh, when it came out, it was a highly anticipated film. And when it came out, I remember Dustin Hoffman, who plays Carl Bernstein, um, came in and – I guess it was a break, break, breakthrough that uh, he had, uh, and he came back and told the director, Alan Pakula, he said, I figured it out. I figured out Bernstein's character. What I couldn't get, apparently what Dustin Hoffman couldn't understand is how Bernstein had this kind of intuitive understanding of what Nixon would have done. And he said, the reason is, he says, Nixon's a screw-up, and Bernstein's a screw-up, and now I understand Bernstein. <laughs> One of the movies, I think this was about a president. It was called Lincoln. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't about an automobile. No, and it wasn't about the capital of Nebraska. Right. No, it was about uh, the 16th president of the United States. Euclid says this is self-evident. You see, there it is. Even in that 2,000-year-old book of mechanical law, it is a self-evident truth that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Lincoln's been in a lot of movies. I mean, I, I really liked that Steven Spielberg movie. Um, I think it had it, it was somewhat controversial for finessing certain things about race and 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 not being entirely historical accurate. Any histor- any playwright, you'll forget, maybe this is you know a apologia for um, my own work. You know, has to take certain liberties. Uh, I thought in general it was good, and I really liked. Daniel Day-Lewis's characterization of Lincoln. Um, until then, the dominant characterization of Lincoln was Raymond Massey in uh, Robert Sherwood's Abe Lincoln in Illinois. And that's that's what a lot of us of a certain age grew up with. When you talk about the, 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 the uh, historical accuracy, does it bother you like the, there was a lot of the controversy in Selma about whether what, what Lyndon Johnson's role really was in the March on Selma in 1965? Um, does that bother bother you as a, as a playwright and lyricist? And it, it's, it's funny that you mention it because um, I'm collaborating with several other playwrights uh, on a play that's going to, uh, for those of you near Kansas City, it's going to premiere this spring at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It's called Freedom Rider, and it's about the 1961 Freedom Rides. Um, and we do deal with a, a, a president. We don't actually portray John F. Kennedy, but he's, and, and his brother, the Attorney General, very present in this play. And it, it bothered me that our play was not exactly historically accurate. But we're just going to make a big disclaimer saying this is we, – we made certain elisions. We made certain conflations and we made certain – frankly, uh, there are some scenes that could never have happened. But they're here to, to get at a, a deeper truth. We're after the characters of those people. But it does – so it does bother me when something's not historically accurate. But – I really love the controversy. For example, Selma, which I thought was a really wonderful film and not an easy film to direct, not an easy film to write. As you may know, um, the Martin Luther King estate refused to let them uh, use King's actual speeches unless they paid a, 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 a King's ransom. <laughs> You'll forgive me. And the truth is, so, so um, the director and screenwriter went and rewrote she rewrote and paraphrased his speeches and I thought did a very, very good job of it. But what's great is the more people who discuss this, gee, what was Johnson's real role and what was the dynamic between King and John? You got more people looking into history and heaven knows there are few enough people really 
cherishing history and discussing it and realizing what a living and important thing it is in the United States. I understand the controversy about what's real and what's when uh, what's played that the truth stretched a little bit. What I like about this coming this upcoming movie that I'm going to play this scene is that given the, the the importance of war and of course you know that President Obama has gone to Congress with an authorization for war about resolution, Islam, right? uh, war resolution against Islamic State. But to me, this is what reality is. General Cooper says that the Sylvanian troops are about to land on Fedonia soil. This means war. Something must be done. War would mean a prohibitive increase in our taxes. Hey, I got an uncle lives in taxes. No, I'm talking about taxes, money, dollars. Dallas, that's where my uncle lives. Dallas, taxes. <laughs> Murray, before we go, I mean, we're talking about President's Day and the Oscars. What, what are, what, what's the ones that stand out to you? stand out to you that we haven't mentioned so oh, far? Oh, boy, boy. Well, first of all, if you're doing Groucho, I have to say, and here I'm going to go outside my own ground rules for this for, uh, uh, exercise, and that is there, there is not a president but a prime minister. There's a terrific comedy called Million Dollar Legs with Jack Oakey and Lyda Roberti and W.C. Fields as the prime minister of, I think it's Klopstakia. <laughs> it's, a, it's a land where all the men are named George and all the women are named Betty, and it is really funny. And what I like about it and the greatest satirical point to me about it is the reason W.C. Fields is the prime minister is that every morning he comes in and arm wrestles every one of his cabinet members and he wins. If he ever loses, he's no longer prime minister, but he always wins. But for the president of the United States, I think of one almost cameo, and that's in a movie I'm not crazy about with Joan Allen called The Contender about the the first uh, woman to be nominated for the presidency. Um, but Jeff Bridges, I think it is, plays this kind of Clinton-esque president who just has so much fun being president. Uh, he just loves being president. And, and you got to figure that if somebody makes it to the top of the political heap to be elected president of the United States, they're having a good time doing it. The opposite that I would recommend to everybody is Henry Fonda, not as the best man, but Henry Fonda in the movie Failsafe where he has an, a really extraordinary turn. And it's, it's one of, to me, it's one of his best roles. He's the president of the United States at the time of a nuclear conflict. Also 1964, when Goldwater's candidacy was That's right. Yes. That's right. And when, when people, people fail to understand, I mean, yes, I am of the generation where we had to, you know, do a drill when I was in elementary school of duck undercover in case the bomb fell. Uh, and and uh, the bomb was a real and present danger, or so we imagined. And um, it's a really good screenplay, um, failsafe. In and what happens is that there's this moment at which the president has to address the nation, has to has to have a, a conversation with the not address the nation, I think, but as a conversation with the Russian prime minister premier. And and I'm not going to ruin it for anybody, but it's a perfect blending of his duties as president and his duties as a husband, and it's 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 really a wonderful portrayal. Probably, uh, and without ruining that movie, probably the toughest decision yes. a president in a movie has ever a, had to face. That's right. You know, maybe except for Jack Nicholson and Mars Attacks. Murray <laughs> <laughs> Horowitz is a playwright, lyricist, actor, writer, director, and a former colleague at NPR. He's won numerous awards, was the writer and creator of Ain't Misbehavin' and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And he actually began his career, not many of you know this, he actually began his career with Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus working as a clown. Surprisingly, that later turned into a movie entitled Carnival Knowledge. <laughs> no. That's sorry, sorry. Murray, it was great seeing you again. Great seeing you. Uh, we'll have you back again. Oh, good. I can't wait, Ken. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, 
send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. And I hope you've been giving my other podcast a listen. I've teamed up with Kerry Miller of Minnesota Public Radio to produce The Button. And the third episode goes up this week. Give it a listen at button.substack.com. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated more than ever. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. For all to see, for one who I am with no more. It's hard at times. It's awful wrong. They say that Jesus healed the sick and helped the poor, and those unsure believed his eyes. A strange disguise. Still write it down, it might be read. Nothing's better left unsaid. Only sometimes, still no doubt, it's hard to see, it all works out.